The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Thank you very much for joining us uh, at this, the first Food and Drink Federation uh, Inclusion and Diversity in the UK Food and Drink Manufacturing Sector. Um, So not only is it our first forum, it's also the setting for the forthcoming launch uh, of our first Inclusion and Diversity report as well. So let me introduce myself. I'm your chair for this afternoon. My name's Jill Coyle. My uh, day job is Apprenticeship Manager with uh, Nestle UK in Ireland, um, but I also am member chair of the Food and Drink Federation's Employment and Skills. Forum. So today we're joined by uh, an illustrious panel. Um, so I'll introduce the panel in a second, but I just um, wanted to take a couple of moments to, to set the scene. Uh, and it's fair to say I don't think there's ever been a more appropriate time to focus in on inclusion and diversity in our businesses. From school children to professional athletes, there's never been more attention on addressing social inequalities. And instead of perhaps overthinking problems, it now feels like there's a momentum and an excitement about making changes to create meaningful impact. This this narrative isn't just societal though, Um, there's increased focus uh, in the workplace on inclusion and diversity and many if not all of our businesses are looking at the phrase in all of its glory, in gender, ethnicity, creativity, thought, they're all becoming key principles when we're starting to make workplace decisions. Our food and drink manufacturing sector is no different. Um, Significant numbers of conversations um, are happening across our businesses and it's those conversations that bring us together today to mark the launch of the the first uh, inclusion and diversity report. It feels appropriate to me, certainly, that we use the report as a mark in the sand for our sector. Clearly, many of us are already taking positive steps to close gender uh, gender pay gaps and now contemplating challenges such as ethnicity pay gap reporting as well, and how we introduce initiatives which ensure all groups feel valued. And we do this not because it's uh, it's simply uh, a good corporate social responsibility initiative or it feels like the right thing to do, but we do it because it makes sound business sense. Diverse workplaces improve business performance, business reputation, widens recruitment pools, and makes it easier to retain and progress talent. Um, Importantly, when we all feel valued in our workplaces, it also has a positive mental and physical wellbeing uh, benefit too. So today for us as a sector, it's an important step on this road, and it's very much about looking ahead and marching forward. Continuous improvement is a watchword in all of our businesses, and it has meaning in the world of diversity and inclusion too. We need to do more to increase the diversity of our workforces, especially in senior leadership roles. And with social activism happening all around us now, our new generations of talent have expectations of us that we support people at every stage of their life and career. As the UK's biggest manufacturing sector, we need to step forward and drive positive change within our workplaces. As we look ahead in terms of current and future challenges and importantly opportunities for the food and drink industry, we will have a significant contribution to make to levelling up the country through offering rewarding jobs and how we're going to deliver solutions to tackle the big societal issues and environmental challenges such as public health and net zero. Skilled and diverse talent will be a key enabler for us to meet these challenges and take advantage of these opportunities. Diverse backgrounds and diversity of thought will help us with creating problem solving. And through collaboration and sharing best practice from 
today's event, um, we're always looking at how we can improve collectively so that we can make the food and drink manufacturing sector an example for others to follow. So discuss some of these uh, most prevalent issues uh, in this DNI debate today. Uh, I've been joined by an, uh, an illustrious panel. So I've got Sam Akinui, founder of Salt. I've got Johanna Dickinson, HR director with KP Snacks. I'm joined by Pranav Chopra, um, chief executive officer from NEMAT. And I'm also joined by Griffin Shiel, policy executive at the Food and Drink Federation and author of the uh, Food and Drink Federation's Inclusivity and Diversity Report. I'm Griffin Shiel, I'm a policy executive at FDF and I principally focus on employment policy, which has included writing our inclusion diversity report. And that's been a top priority for me since I joined the company in January. And so a bit about why we wrote this report. Um, touched on these things. So the workplace including diversity is becoming more and more of a priority in recent years, not just for our sector, but all sectors of the economy. And as the biggest manufacturing sector in the UK, or rather representing the biggest manufacturing sector in the UK, FDF, felt that it was imperative for us to have a well-informed position in this area. And for this to be possible, we needed to take stock of the current state of inclusion diversity in the sector, which is principally what the report does. It's also important to note that this is not the first, and nor will it be the last report on this topic in our sector. So in 2019, the MBS Group and the Institute of Grocery Distribution published a report titled Diversity in Food and Grocery. And that found that the sector was largely behind the rest of the UK economy when it came to key measurables such as diversity senior leadership or how many companies had in place coordinated inclusion and diversity strategies. But the two years since then, UK inclusion and diversity landscape has changed significantly. This has necessitated a reassessment of where we are. And so drawing from statistics and also anecdotal evidence we collected through conversations with members, we can now say with confidence that progress has been the gender gap, gender pay gap rather is being reduced. This is recognizing the challenges with gender reporting and looking for solutions to this. And they're also looking ahead and looking at the challenges arise if or more likely when pay reporting is introduced. And a large variety of initiatives are also in place, so recruitment strategies such as anonymous CVs, establishing employee networking groups to improve retention and include representation, and training staff, which are some of the initiatives our members spoke to us about. And so those member those initiatives are all positive, but we can and should be aiming to do more. And not just because we think we should or that it's the right thing to do, but because of also our benefit our sector. These are the points Jill touched upon earlier, innovation, creativity, better decision making, and also making your place a more attractive place to work. Young people, especially from all backgrounds, want to work in workplaces that reflect society. They don't want to work in homogenous workspaces. And so by not embodying these principles, you could be missing out on talent. And from this comes out in the report. Panav, maybe maybe let's let me start with yourself. Um, in terms of the term diversity and inclusion, I think, you know, commonly used, but sometimes actually really daunting because for some businesses, where do you start? It's such a it's such a big topic. So I wondered if perhaps you can give us some some of your thoughts or tips and guidance on on maybe where you and your organisation started or maybe where we where we can avoid um, running into any particular challenges. So interested in your thoughts on this one and then we'll pick up with the rest of the panel. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's a really um, sort of, I guess, a common question. Where do you begin uh, when you're looking to make a positive change? Um, I guess 
I would personally suggest looking at, I guess, the ethos of the organization and what you really stand for. You know, in the journey towards building a more inclusive organization, um, it is important to consider the relationship uh, between what's happening, I guess, inside and outside your company. You know, what is your brand actually saying about who you are as a culture? Um, you know, it's about the entire company, um, how that operates and the individuals uh, that make up the company, you know, their way of working, communicating, contributing, and just, I guess, just being in the world. Um, so from my end, you know, in any transformation effort, brand and culture are intimately connected. So, yeah, I would suggest starting from considering your brand um, and initially and this okay, from there. So that would be the starting point. So is an organization that's focused on making things possible for anyone irrespective of their background. I think Sam it would be good. The question I've just asked Pranav and maybe you can you can take it take the bat on here um, is just about um, you know diversity and, uh, diversity and inclusion is such a big topic it can seem like quite a difficult um, topic to get your arms around and, and know where to start first as, a, as an organization. So just tips and guidance or experience tells you where can we perhaps you know, help some of the the other businesses on the call to get to get a sense of where to start the journey. I would I would always start with okay, why are you trying to start this? Um, often it's because it's you know we've been asked to or it's something to do, and it's 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 a head versus heart thing here. So, why are you trying to start it? What's the benefit? And and I would say really reflecting on that as an organisation is extremely important. The second thing I would do before we get technical is spend some time and if, if you're in a position of leadership or you're involved in this subject directly spend some time with people that are to you so really invest in really understanding why difference is important by spending time with people that are not from the same background and don't look for similarities just look for the differences and celebrate those differences i think often we talk about you know we're all the same but we're not at all and the benefit is really understanding that and then understanding what you do with it. So there's are two sort of behavioral acts, I'd say. I'll, I would also just say, start being conscious of the environment that you are creating within the organization. So is it an organization where if someone was different, they will find it comfortable? So that's the other thing I'll add. Yeah, and I think I can probably build on what Sam's said actually, um, because we did get, uh, we did actually start a little bit with our employee engagement survey, which we ran every year with best companies. And we had the option to add four bespoke questions to that survey, um, which we asked about, you know, whether they felt that the organisation was committed to um, having a diverse group of employees that represents our communities, whether diversity important was important, was important to them as individuals, whether they felt the culture was inclusive, and more importantly, whether they felt they belonged at KP. Um, and actually the results were quite interesting and I think there's a bit of a watch out here because we actually have quite high engagement, it's grown year on year, um, but what we also have is a dominant culture and therefore you have to look a lot harder at what the results of surveys would show you. Um, so for us, even though the scores were good, the fact that we had 20% of scores saying that um, they felt the culture here was inclusive in the neutral or less favourable area, that was enough for us as a call to action. So what we then did is a series of uh, listening sessions with an external company, actually, because we wanted it to be as open and as 
you know, creating that safe environment for people to to really tell us what they thought. Really, yes, we put the verbatim comments in the survey, but actually we felt the discussion was a good way to really find out more about how our employees were, were feeling. And then and in the report that Griff's um, mentioned, Griffin's mentioned earlier, it you know it does start start with a bit of a baseline. So that for us was what we did last year, and we're hoping that as we go through annual updates of that and do more listening sessions, we'll start to see that improvement. But there is a bit of a watch out when you have got a dominant culture. Okay, great. Thanks, Johanna. That's a kind of good good piece of advice there, just in terms of of being uh, mindful of that. I guess just in terms of, of a sort of a further question and taking this on a little bit, I mean we've we've kind of over the last few days and weeks we've seen we've all seen headlines around, you know, labour shortages and, and particularly impacting you know elements of our, our food and drink um sector and our food and drink manufacturing sector. Um so I guess it's it's in everybody's interest to kind of open up our talent pools um at, at every stage to take advantage of that. So so just in terms of, of uh, your own experiences have you any practical examples of how broadening your DNI strategy, you know, has or or could have delivered, uh, you know, deliver for you in terms of that new and and diverse talent pool? So, um, Joe, maybe do you want to kick this one off for us? Yeah, I, I can. It's an example that springs to mind, which actually isn't from KP, but I actually was uh, networking with uh, Jennifer Richmond, who's HR director at National Express, and just hearing about the sort of shortages of uh, of drivers in in logistics right now and actually there's not enough women uh, that take on those roles it reminded me of that and what National Express did a really good job of is is, is really um, being flexible about the sorts of um, shift patterns that they could offer parents who had children to to drop off at school and they would be would be advertising that flexibility in their adverts the other thing that once they'd attracted those more females in which did did happen it's another job to retain them as well so you do need to make sure that the environment is 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 is, is you know suitable and going to make um females feel they can flourish in the organization and one of the things that they they heard from their female employees was that the uniform didn't really work for them because um the shirt wear that they had um would cross over from right to left and when you're sitting on a bus and everyone's entering to the left you know, often that can cause gaping um, when you're sat. So actually, you know, they it was it was staying really attentive to what was going to make the environment um, really suitable for females to to feel comfortable and to thrive within the organisation. And we can definitely learn from that. We've got um, typically packing roles in our factories done by women and process jobs done by men. So we need to to do a better job of showing actually what 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 all the reasons why females can work in process and why males can work in packing although it's probably more the the former of that because a lot of the automation that's happening within manufacturing is going to remove some of those packing jobs over time um so yeah there's definitely some learnings there we should take around thinking about the role attributes and, and listening to female colleagues when as as they start to enter into those more male dominated areas sam if you can still hear us Kind of what what experiences perhaps can have yes. you seen in terms of broadening um, broadening talent pools by uh, by looking at your DNI strategy? One of the thing, the biggest things we can do as an industry is 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 our, our obsession with I would say degrees and further education. Um, I, I came up through a sales background, and there's no way I needed any of my degree to do what I've been able to do, frankly, and, and spending 14 hours a week and playing a lot of sport and going out. And yes, I'd got a degree at the end of it, had no reflection on my ability 
um, once I started work. Um, so when it comes to broadening our um, broadening our DNI strategy, I think we need to really challenge ourselves as an industry about the the, the levels, and it's not in a, even about levels; it's the standards we're creating that are quite false, I would say. And um, the other thing I would say on this is we need to work harder at looking for the diversity and looking for the breadth, because as soon as you say you know, apply for a job at Nestle or a KP or any of these places, people are going to apply, but it's all the same people. Um, so how do we work harder? And maybe perhaps with organizations and things that Pranav is doing, um, is how do we work harder to find the talent? Because it's not just everyone, with all due respect to the 2-1 from Loughborough or 2-1 from Exeter, um, that makes a great salesperson or makes a great dot, dot, dot. So I, that's one thing I'll say with broadening is I think, we can't broaden if our requirements on people are very, very narrow. Pranav, do you want to, to pick up the, the topic? Yeah, I just wanted to actually tie this in back to our organisation, the work we do with um, refugees. It's, um, you know, I would really suggest that employers to look past the visa status uh, of the individuals and assess more the talent and skills that the individual has. I think too many companies are fixated about you know, where they work locally and just getting a local reference from an employer. You know, sometimes people just need a chance in life. Um, and we really need to look at the bigger picture and see all the positives that our diverse workforce um, brings to an organization. Um, so that's quite key, I believe. And also, in fact, research has shown that refugees tend to switch between jobs lesser than local citizens, as well as are more skilled on a qualification basis as compared to the average applicant. Um, you know, that they receive in, in the jobs. So I really do believe it is a no-brainer to hire refugees um, and simply because they, that's just, the, you know, they, they have the need for the first opportunity of employment in the UK. And then, you know, then they go from there. So, um, yeah, I guess it's just uh, given that first opportunity. How do you bring existing staff with you um, when you're trying to make a culture change in an organisation? How do you how do you how do you do that? So, Sam, maybe you would like to, to, to kick off with some some thoughts. I'd love I'd love to. And one of the things we do at Salt so Salt does three things. It's engaging young underrepresented talent with the industry. Um, it runs an accelerator for underrepresented entrepreneurs. But the most important critically, one of the things we do Gareth my co-founder, is really think about the environment and the culture within the organization. And that is something that question of how do you bring people along is so important because it's the people that set the environment. It's not just the one leader or the DNI team. So how do you do that? Well you have to treat it like any kind of behavioral change. You have to understand where people are at. You really it's sometimes you can't just tell them what to do. Sometimes it's some kind of disruption. What has changed in their lives that helps them to really reflect on the importance of diversity? And if nothing's changed, how do we as leaders create that kind of change and say something needs to be different? I often start with, do you bring your difference to work? And that's not a colour thing. That's nothing to do with DNI. Every individual probably takes less of themselves to work. As soon as you walk in that front door, you're trying to be someone else. And that's something that can, I think a lot of people can connect with. Um, you then have to move through to talking to those people about their differences and encourage them to look around and say, actually, if everyone else brought their difference, what difference could that make within the organisation? So what we often do is just run a course or tell people to read a book, but we're not engaging or having any empathy for the change we're asking leaders and individuals to make within the organisations. 
So I would start with understanding where they're at and encouraging them to think about how much they leave out the door and how much more enjoyable their work life would be or how engaged they would be. And then think, if people are different to me, how much harder is it for them, especially if it's not an environment they're used to? So you have to start with the individual and don't think a one-off will fix it. It's behavioural change over time. And you can do that at an organisational level. You can establish where your, where your um, goal is in terms of the environment you want to create. You can talk about that. You can align that um, people to that. But then you need to be really clear about where you are right now as an individual, as an organisation versus that culture you want to create. But it is an individual connection piece that's really important. Johanna, what's your take on that, that question? I totally agree with Sam and, and very much along the same lines as we've taken. Um, we already had some values and behaviours champions um, that were really more of an engagement champions. Um, so they were all of our always going to be our advocates for our behaviour framework that we have and bringing our values to life every day. So one of the things we, we look to do is update that, that behaviour framework, as Sam said, to communicate the expectations that we want for our culture to include more overtly IND. So whilst we had a, a, a value which is about value our people, the feedback we got from our shadow group was it's not clear enough that you it's, you really um, what that means. You need to be clear that it's about being inclusive behaviour. What is inclusive behaviour? What is ex what is excluding behaviour? Making that really really clear for people, and then use um, the the framework as a basis for workshop discussions. And that discussion is really valuable. You could do the same workshop with different people and have really rich and um, meaningful conversations about people's perceptions of how they feel at work, but also understanding others' um, feelings as well who are different to them. So I really encourage that method of, of mixing people up and really encouraging the dialogue to then really then bring a, a framework to life that, that is perhaps quite sterile into something much more meaningful. Coupled with that, we've uh, also noticed um, that when you do, um, when you link of world events or, or uh, events that are happening anyway in the calendar, like Pride Month is a really great example of this, and you do a communications plan around that, bringing employee stories to life for people to share, um, linking it with a learning um, opportunity, like a learning lab. That we've been using the Diversity in Grocery um, Hub for this, where they do webinars uh, once a month on a key topic. Um, and the one in, uh, in June was all on pride. So when we had a communication plan, um, a learning lab, and we had colleagues' stories around a particular theme, the impact of that was huge. Um, and that, I think, is really memorable um, and a really good way of kind of keeping these um, opportunities going. So we now have a calendar for the rest of the year, and I'm sure that will continue into next year as well. Pranav, any, uh, any builds on, on what jo Johanna and Sam have, have indicated? Yeah, I think I think they've covered it quite well. Um, but just you know, I, I guess I can speak from a smaller um, entity perspective. You know, I think you just need your entire team to come on that journey. You've got to be on that same sort of um, level playing field, and um, and you know, really showcase the value it, it brings um, to the organisation as well as to the individual. You know, what is the impact on the individual? I think sometimes we we forget that. Um, and the impact on um, sort of uh, every staff member. So I think uh, bringing everyone on that journey is quite critical. Something else I think is important, Sam sort of touched on it, is, is the importance of the, the, the style of leadership. Because actually what we expect of leaders now, particularly in manufacturing organisations, is very different to the style of leadership that we, we had 20 years ago. So we need our, our leaders um, 
who we have um, more male than female leaders, we need them to be more comfortable expressing uh, vulnerability, empathy is, is a word that's come up a few times already, um, humility, um, and those aren't necessarily always easy for people to demonstrate. Um, so there's definitely a leadership journey to go on as well um, as the full cultural um, piece as well with all employees. So there's probably something else to consider. And Johanna, just coming back to your question from the audience, um, asking about the, the women's network um, that you talked to, you referenced earlier, kind of, you know, could you bring that to life a little bit for us? Give us a bit of an overview in terms of topics and focus, perhaps who, who participated and kind of what the value of that network um, drove. Well, the value was, was, was certainly huge and personally, I definitely benefited from it, but it actually doesn't exist anymore. Um, so one of the learnings was that it needed to evolve. It was very successful for sort of four or five years that it ran um, and it was open to everyone, males and females. Um, and it was literally just a, a, a physical event. Things that we did on there were career panels, so showcasing different different um, career journeys for different females within the organisation. Sometimes an external guest speaker. So there was a um, head of um, supply chain from Unilever came to talk to us. It was really great. Um, and then we did some exercises as well. We talked about, you know, how how um, accessible are some of our job adverts that we put out there. Let's get some feedback from you around maybe some of the descriptions in there that maybe more typically male attributes versus female attributes. So there was a, a real mix of different activities to help really call light or shine light on what females would perhaps need more help with to help with sort of bringing more equitable progression within the business. Um, the reason why it evolved is because um, it needed to expand, it needed to grow, it needed to be much more about more inclusive. Um, so actually they now have an inclusive um, uh, network and they have Just Be champions around the, the Coca-Cola business who um, really are advocates in the same way. We, we're trying to kind of copy a lot of what Coke have done because it's really worked for them um, as a way of really um, bringing, bringing um, all um, underrepresented groups to give them more, shine a light on them, give them more access to support and to each other to build a network of strength um, that the rest of the organisation can also learn from. So things they do with their Just Be Champions is they will partner with leadership team members and they'll be very open and honest about how, what's going well and what's not going well for them. Um, and they're also used externally to recruitment. So if someone's applying for a role, they actually get them to speak to one of the Just Be Champions to, who tell them what it's really like to work in that business, which I think is really, um, really good, good way of doing things as well. So hopefully that gives a little bit, but probably best to talk to Sue and the team. Um, at CCP. So let's have a little look at, at um, small to, to medium-sized enterprises, obviously make up a huge proportion of the, the UK economy and, and certainly for our sector as well, absolutely no different. How, how do you think perhaps um, we can support these businesses to progress with, with, with diversity and inclusion? Um, so Sam, maybe how, how can we start with perhaps businesses, how can we help and support businesses that are that are smaller and perhaps don't have the size of HR teams or or you know CSR teams um, to to kind of drive this agenda. What might you suggest? I, I would say this is um it's really interesting. I've worked. I, I advise a company called Young Foodies, who are sort of the community of small food and drink brands in the UK. And my my observation is, if you go to a Christmas party with all those small food and drink brands, it's probably the the least diverse group. You can imagine and and the reason for that and i'm just talking food and drink startups in particular is you know it's it's really hard to start a new a business you need a lot of money you need network you need resources and not everyone has access to that and and i think there has to be a level of we, we have to think that the starting point is quite difficult um so just to get there there's not many 
diverse startups in the UK. Um, the other point I would make on this, and there's, stat, there's a stats on this, is 0.24% of venture capitalist funding went to black entrepreneurs over the last 10 years, which is a, ty- a tiny amount. So what I would say is they are incredibly underfunded. Um, so what we need to do is really help all people start businesses, not just small SMEs, you know, work on diversity. We need more diverse SMEs and they need access to funding. They need access to retailers. And one of the things we do um, with Tesco as the Sainsbury's, um, Morrison's and Ocado's, we've started an incubator just for this, just to say, how do we help you? How do we give you the network? How do we give you the know-how? And it's all non-profit as well. So how do we help small small SMEs is get more SMEs, but make it a more diverse group. Um, the one last point I would make on this is when you're, if, you, if you're a founder, the first couple of people you hire are not likely to be diverse. You're going to hire people that are like you. You're probably going to hire your friend to work with your friend. So I can understand that. That's why it's not necessarily about changing the SME. I'd rather have more SMEs, but a more diverse group. And Pranav, maybe you can come in on this one um, in terms of your experiences. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess given we're a small business ourselves, um, you know, I really feel we need access to events that uh, showcase um, and highlight SMEs who have a strong focus on DNI and as part of the DNA itself. Um, you know, I really do think large corporates have a lot to learn from smaller businesses as we tend to be more agile and sort of implement solutions around DNI in a much more efficient manner. Um, so, and again, I am truly privileged to be part of this esteemed panel today um, and able to discuss the work we do from a DNI perspective. At METs, um, but I feel there are so many more other amazing SMEs across the UK who are doing a far better job than us. So deserve to be highlighted as we have through this event. So I think just having more of these uh, events would be very, very beneficial for SMEs. So I'd like to move on to, to data now because you know data is often quite heavily relied on to demonstrate change in this area. Um, but what we see is everybody's reporting just slightly different. Um, so you know, again, some thoughts from, from panel members just in terms of recording data, what to record uh, and, and when to do it um, as well. And then Griffin, at the end, I'd like to bring you in on this one because I think we've got some great insight from, from the nationwide uh, in, in terms of how they've tackled streamlining. But interested to hear from the panel first. Yes, um, given our sites, you know, there is limited data collection. Um, but however, we are sort of implementing standardised templates uh, to track our, especially our social impact. Uh, for the work we do with refugees, both in terms of, I guess, financial inclusion, as well as um, the indirect impact on their dependents themselves as well. Um, so at the moment, yeah, using those standardised templates, as well as on a sort of quarterly basis, that's the sort of uh, data collection and reporting we're doing at MET so far. But obviously, this is, you know, as we grow, um, it's going to be more sort of, I guess, complex reporting and data collection. Um, Johanna, what's your take? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we, we do ask for people to fill in when they join the business um, details about themselves and their ethnicity, um, nationality, etc. And um, what we found was actually a lot of people chose not to fill those in. They weren't mandatory questions. Um, we haven't revisited that deliberately because we feel at the very beginning of our R&D journey, we need to spend more time, you know, really understanding where the culture is and the measurement around the survey I mentioned earlier and uh, really more the kind of the cultural aspects are more important now um, and then you know at a time when we feel then we 
uh, need to, need to have a better understanding of our makeup, then 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 we'll we'll have we'll, it'll be very clear for employees why we need it and, and what we're going to do with that information once we've got it. But if we go out there too early with that, I think we'll just get the same response that people just don't fill it in. So I think it's coming. I will say though, what we do do in recruitment is we are uh, certainly tracking the number of female um, candidates we're having for roles to make sure we've got balanced shortlists, and we are making sure we're tracking that we have diverse interviewing panels as well. It's equally important. Um, that when you come to an interview, you, you do see a, you know, uh, both genders and ideally uh, more ethnicity as well, so that people feel that that is an organisation that's right for them to join. Um, so at the moment, it's just on gender, on that inclusive recruitment. But we are looking to extend that in the future. Sa- Sam, do you have a view on this one before we bring in Griffin and and an example yeah. from, from Nationwide? Yes, I, I think um, you've got to be careful what, what you're measuring. I think a lot of people are just, it's put the measure, put the, the questionnaire out just really hoping it's not as bad as they think it is so so I, I think we need to sort of be careful about what we're measuring um the the one thing i would say from personal experience and and to touch on johanna's point again it's i was always taught always it was my understanding that actually if i filled that box in it could actually be to my it, it, it could affect me negatively if i said i was black African in my ethnicity. So there's a lot of people that are still not thinking that you know, the best interests, their best interests are being considered when they fill in some of these things. So that's why there is a, there's going to be such a challenge. Um, people are scared to complete it or are very, very suspicious. However, I do think, again to Johannesburg, we need to be better at measuring culture and the environment and and thinking about how and thinking about progress as well so without some of these numbers we can't measure progress but the other thing i'm worried about is people think oh that's great we've got a real real variety in our ethnicity we're sorted whereas what we're all trying to do is be exactly the same and and that doesn't get measured so if we're not bringing our difference we could all actually look um completely different but just act in exactly the same way. So we miss the inclusion, but we kind of hit the aesthetic, top-line, superficial diversity piece. Um, so what I would say, is, yes, collect the data, what, but measure what does progress look like? And progress is not getting a diverse group that all act in one way. I mean, if that's a choice, and if you choose for it to be that, then you're actually just in- interested in, that. I would say that's a tick box exercise and not a real, and agenda. And I guess just you know a couple of comments in the in the question box. I guess it's a very it's a very careful balancing act, isn't it? Because you know there's inclusion and then there's the, the signposting and segregation. How do you how do you strive to achieve that balance so that that you're not turning off one or other audience? Um, what, what's your take on that, Sam, specifically? Because I guess probably with salt you've you've perhaps seen and experienced that more bit more than others i, I think I, I picked up the question is is, is sort of the, the ballot the, the balancing act i would say um you know what we've done with salt is we've said you need more you need more diversity but i don't want to bring more diverse people in if they're just going to assimilate or look around and think this is just not me and walk out mm-hmm. but what 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 I'm sort of realizing is with those stats they could be quite temporary as well. You know, so the, we want people to start their careers and stay and stay for a prolonged amount of time. So when we are measuring, we have to have an element of, 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 of measurement there. I would say the balancing act and the sensitivity, if I picked up the question correctly, is we need to state our intent and be a bit braver 
about why we are doing this. We need to put it out there and say, we need to understand where we're at because we want to improve. If you just send out something, of course it's going to be sensitive because people are thinking, why? People are, people are suspicious based on years and years of that. So um, I, I would say it, we need to be, to, to, to manage that, it's going to be uncomfortable. So let's just accept that this is uncomfortable conversation and we're trying to change stuff. And when I do hear people say, oh, it's quite sensitive or we need to broach it really carefully, I get a little bit impatient because that just says to me that, you know, progress won't come as quickly as we'd all like it to. So I think have been ready for those uncomfortable conversations and placing everything we're doing within that context is really important. It's going to be hard. We don't have all the answers. We're going to get stuff wrong. We need to understand where we are and we want to change the culture. We want our culture to be a culture where anybody can bring all of themselves and not bring less of themselves just to accommodate other people. And Griffin, just just give us an example, just sort of back to the data piece with with Nationwide and what they've done, um, and, and maybe something for us as a as a sector to consider moving forward. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Joel. Um, so just to echo the points that everyone's made, um, data is not the be all and end all of achieving good inclusion and diversity. It's a uh, it's a tool. It's something which is meant to facilitate it, but you know, collecting data is not enough. Um, having said that, um, from our report, one of the case studies given, and I can't take credit for this, this was a law firm that we commissioned to do some work around um, the possible challenges of ethnicity pay data collection um, called Walker Morris. They provide a really interesting case study from Nationwide. Um, it had some real issues with data collection and citing various things, um, employee mistrust, um, uncertainty over what was going to what, what was going to happen to their data, where it was being stored. And I guess this comes into wider concerns around data security and sensitive information. And um, they just took a simple decision to be very, very clear with why they were collecting data. So what was the purpose very upfront with it and what they were going to do with it in order to keep it confidential confidential. And the results were, you know, kind, you know, very impressive. They they did a survey in January 2015 where they had a response rate of around a quarter. And by by December 2016, it was 97%. So that's an absolutely, you know, I, I scarcely believe it myself that sort of rise. And while, you know, as you said, having people respond to data isn't, you know, the only thing you need. You, you need to actually do something with that. If you can be upfront and honest and create a, you know, an environment of trust between employers and employees, because as Sam alluded to, the reason people don't give away their data is you know, like that people aren't sure what you're going to do with it and you're worried you, it might be held against you. And on top of that, there's another thing you need to do as an industry, which is actually encourage businesses to collect data as well because there is some trepidation around that, around possible implications of, um, of collecting data, particularly around ethnicity. So some, um, from some conversations with members, they were worried that if they had a factory, for example, in an area in the UK with a very low ethnic diversity, and you say the uh, number of um, non-white people in the town was around sort of only you know, 2 3%, they were worried that they would be, you know, essentially made an example of if they reported data to show that their 
workforce through very little fault of their own was comparatively low in diversity. So we need to get past that and actually encourage people to collect data as, you know, it's not, it's not something that we're going to use against you. It's something that can be used as a starting point because it's a way of identifying where there are gaps. And that is obviously a massive step to improving the inclusion of diversity of your company. Thank, thanks, Griffin. So really conscious of time, everybody. So panellists, I'm going to come back to you with one question. I want a two or three word answer to this, which is if you were to teleport yourselves forward two years uh, in terms of the sector, what would we hope to see um, within our workplaces at that point. So three words each, I'll let you have a little think about that. In the last minute or so, Griffin, what, what do we do following today then? So a good debate, good forum, some good questions coming in from our audience. How do we turn uh, the narrative into action and commitments and, uh, and progress? How would you like to see that happening? Yeah, it's in a really good debate. And so thank you for the panellists and the audience for sending in their questions. Um, the next steps in terms of engaging with the work we're doing is firstly, read the report. Uh, it will be coming out today, um, so read the report. And this this report is a conversation starter. It is not the it's not the culmination of our work. It's not this isn't the end point. This is a starting point. We want people to feedback. I would love to be able to use this report and see it, you know, trans, you know, change over time and have it see more case studies of people making progress and feeding back on the work that we did. So read it, engage with it, feedback to me. Um, my email is, uh, it will be um, on the website, uh, the events page. Feedback to me, say where you think there are gaps in the report. And also, this is also the launch of our Inclusion Diversity Network, which is a new informal network that we're going to be setting up. We're looking to have a first event in the end of quarter three, start of quarter four of this year. Um, so come to that, it's going to be informal, it's going to be sharing best practice, it will be not, it won't be like committees, if you're on FTF committees, it won't be like them, it will be hopefully in person, COVID permitting, and we'll have speakers and we'd like you to feed into that, tell us what your concerns are, if you're concerned about a particular area of our inclusion diversity, feed that in, you know, we want our talks to be around specific ideas rather than what we've done here, which is a more broader conversation. So that's where we want to go forward in terms of our work. It's it's collaborative, as you said. It's not just we can we can sit, but we need other people to join in the conversation. The, the call to action is very clear from Griffin in terms of if you want to get involved in this debate um, and share best practice, uh, join us on that on that particular journey. Um, certainly email Griffin and um, and put your name forward and then we'll we'll take this forward uh, in a more informal context as Griffin says it's not about policy uh, or committee meetings per se it's really about driving driving change but thank you all for your contributions and we look forward to hopefully uh, you being part of our, our forum moving forward um, but my question to you was if if we were to tele teleport our sector forward two years what, what would you hope to see within your workplace um, at that time or with in the, the sector itself. Um, so three three quick words. So Pranav, what would you like to see? Sure, just a quick thank you. And uh, in terms of words, I'd love to see, you know, folks on DNI as being the norm and not being a differentiator amongst organisations. Um, so everyday conversations um, for me. And Sam? I would say bring your difference. And so I'll try to give those three words, but that becomes just something that is very normal in our industry, that people just 
are encouraged to bring their difference. Excellent. And I couldn't think of a better note on which to, to end today's webinar. So thank you, everybody. Appreciate we've gone three minutes over. So my apologies for that. Poor chairing must do better next time. Um, but thank you very much for your questions, for your contribution. I know we didn't get to all the questions, uh, but we've certainly captured them uh, and we can take those into the forum moving forward. Thank you for your time today, everybody. Goodbye. The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sector.